Well, hey, let's uh, let's find our way to uh, the book of James. And if you're just joining us, we're rocking along here in a verse-by-verse study of the book of James. And uh, we will be concluding that study uh, probably mid to late April. And uh, you're going to want to look. Uh, next Sunday, we'll be announcing our summer semester classes. Uh, so David Gibson will be concluding his Intro to the Bible class. I'll be concluding James uh, Don's class in the Psalms will be ongoing since that's a larger book. But um, so, if you're uh, wondering what the summer might bring, uh, tune in next week, and uh, you'll we'll be able to announce those new classes and uh, what we'll be doing then. So, okay. But before we uh, get there, let's let's turn to James four, and uh, that's where we find ourselves today. And I hope it was helpful. I I, I took a little bit of liberty the last couple of weeks by uh, stopping in those first couple verses and just developing. The, really the, the reasons why we end up having conflict, and I, and I hope that that was helpful to, to learn and grow from. And, and so we're going to come back and kind of come back to the actual text and, and work through the text today that illustrates a lot of the things that we talked about last time. So let me go ahead and start the PowerPoint for you here. So you'll remember, uh, for those of you that have been here, are, are you reading James, by the way? I've not asked you in a few weeks. Are you still reading James? I'm glad Melissa's reading James. I see that nod. Good job. Okay. Uh, maybe we need to tighten that up a little bit with some others, right? Okay. So it's a short book. You, you can read it in, in a sitting very easily. You can also just read a chapter a week, and, and you'll get through about one and a half times through the book as you do that. So, um, But anyway, be, be reading through James. And uh, James is writing to an early church, a, a church that is in its infancy, and these are not just Christians that it's like, oh, I found Jesus, life is great. These are people who like, hey, I found Jesus and my life just got a lot, lot, lot more difficult. In fact, the, the first wave of persecution has hit Jerusalem and Jewish converts to Christ who were the, the first people to really uh, become Christians are being persecuted. Uh, and, and what's happened is that persecution has uh, hit a level to where they could no longer stay in Jerusalem and so they've, they've fled. And uh, so James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, writes to them to encourage them and, and to give them direction and counsel. You can imagine, most of the apostles are still in Jerusalem, aren't they? So when, when these Christians have left, the, the only lifeline they would have to those apostles would be these letters that they would get from them. And as the gospel spread to Asia and to North Africa, that's exactly what happened. You know, Paul would write letters, and Peter would write letters, John would write letters and uh, those were the connecting points to Christians as uh, believers scattered outside of Jerusalem. So uh, James is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, the 12 tribes of Israel, Christians who have had to leave Jerusalem. And, and he's writing to them really with two themes in mind. And, and you guys can, you guys can uh, you know, sit here and mouth what I'm going to say because you hear me say this every week, right? He's writing, first of all, to show them what is real Christianity, what is real faith and what does it look like? And, and understanding that they didn't have a New Testament, most of these people probably didn't even have an Old Testament even. So what directions do they need? What does a real Christian look like? What pursuits uh, should real Christians go after? But he's writing to them in the context of persecution and difficult times. So you see these themes come together of how to deal with trials and difficulties and at the same time trying to uh, pursue real Christianity. So that, that's where we're at, and uh, uh, the way I've outlined this is, is not unique. Uh, other commentators have done this too, but I've, I've outlined the book thinking of it as a series of questions, 
Questions that are designed to evaluate the authenticity of your faith. And so the first question that we looked at in the first chapter is how do you respond to challenges, right? And James talks about trials and difficulties and, and you know, how do you respond uh, into temptation? Uh, and then we looked in chapter 2 about uh, does your faith lead to godly action? This is the, you know, faith, real faith is a faith that works, a faith that demonstrates fruit, and, and I hope that that was helpful clarification. I still meet Christians that struggle to understand the relationship between faith and works. And uh, so we understand, right, that, that faith alone in Christ alone is the formula for becoming a Christian, right? My, my I trust in Christ alone for my uh, salvation and for forgiveness, and I don't contribute anything to that transaction in terms of works or effort or keeping the law or anything like that. But what James has argued is that even though faith alone in Christ alone is how we become a Christian, that real faith will inevitably produce works and fruit. So if you got someone running around Hood County and they're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian and I've gone to church since I was eight years old and, and you look at your life and, they, and, and you're like, um, I don't see anything in your life that would demonstrate any sort of faith in Jesus. You go, well, James would say, well, that, that, that's a false faith, right? Uh, faith is not just knowledge that we understand. Faith is not just a profession of faith. Uh, faith is a trust in Christ that leads to the transformation of your life. And if that transformation or works are lacking, James says, well, that's a cause to question the validity of your faith. We talked about in chapter 3, are your words under control? And, uh, man, if we can just get our words under control, right? That's what James is saying, that, that because our mouth and our heart, the, the spiritual part of us are connected, self-control with our words demonstrates a self-control in our hearts. And that's really what we're striving for as we walk with God. Uh, we talked about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom and, and how we have to turn away from the things of the world and really listen to what God says in order to walk with him. And then the last few times we've met, we talked about conflicts. So that's where we're going to pick it up today. And if you want to find your place, if you haven't there, at uh, James chapter 4, verse 1, I will read and you can follow along. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? How many of you, honest, honest, transparent moment here, how many of you have been thinking about why you have conflict in your home in light of what we talked about the last couple of weeks? Okay, you've been thinking about that? Um, I don't mean to sound offensive in saying this, but have you discovered your inner toddler in your conflict? Have you discovered that, that, that I, I'm really angry just because I'm not getting my way? Have you discovered that? We, we all have an inner toddler in us, even if we're you know, 63 years old. And that inner toddler comes out when we don't get our way because we are in love with getting our way, James says, and that's the problem, isn't it? So I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope that you are evicting that inner toddler day by day, moment by moment, as God enables you to do so. Okay, you're envious. Verse 2, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, now now hang on. Hang on for a second. He's going to call us something that's hard. 
You ready? Look at the next verse. You idolaters, right? Is that what it says? You toddlers. That would have fit. You what? Whoa, that's strong language, isn't it? Why would James call us adulterers for simply having a conflict? Well, let's look what he says. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, watch the imperatives here. Watch the commands. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Welcome to Sunday school. Okay, how do you handle conflict? Uh, this is the third test that we're looking at here, right? Um, how do you handle conflict? So let, let's look, first of all, why do you fight? We looked at this last time, right? Why do you fight? If someone says to you, what does the Bible say about why I keep fighting with my spouse or my kids? What would you tell them in light of what you learned? It's my inner toddler. I know, I know. But how would you explain that? What's that? You love getting your way too much. Okay. And what happens when I don't get my way? Yeah, we want what we want when we want it and we don't get it. What happens? We get angry. See, you guys understand anger is a moral event. You, you, you would never get angry if you didn't believe in morality. And this is, Some of you heard me say this before. Anger is actually a wonderful apologetic that we're made in the image of God. Atheists have no basis for getting angry because anger is looking at an event and saying, that's not right. Right? So there's a right and a wrong. See, anger is is a moral, ethical event. You, You would never get angry if you didn't believe in a right and a wrong. You see that? So when, when I'm getting angry, what it's saying is, I think I should get my way and you're not giving me what I want. And that's wrong. Anger is always the byproduct of a moral judgment that we're making on a situation. Anger is always the result of saying, that's not right. And that's why there can be a righteous anger and a sinful anger. You know, if, if we look at a murder and what rises up in our heart is that's not right, well, that's a righteous anger, right? Because it's, it's, it's evaluating something that God says is actually wrong. If it's, um, you know, my, my, one of my boys took the last cookie on the plate, 
and I'm like, that's not right, and I get angry. at it. Well, that's sinful anger because it's based on my selfishness, isn't it? There's no, there's no moral law of God that says dad should get the last cookie. Or is there, Roger? I don't know. Is that, that should be a rule in our homes, right? Dad should get the last cookie, I guess. I don't know. It's not in my... Yes, I know. Still learning, I guess. So, okay. so, so anger is an expression of a moral evaluation. Um, uh, Robert Jones, in his book, A Brooding Anger, has a wonderful definition, Richard Baxter. Uh, Baxter uh, sa- says that anger is the rising up in the heart... In passionate displacency, that's a long word, that's a 17th century guy talking, okay? The rising up in the heart in passionate displacency. You get that? You you understand that? It's this thing, this shh, right? And it's passion, it's energy, and it's displacency, right? It's, it's, that's not right. Against a perceived evil. Okay, so, so anger is, is this rising up that something is wrong against perceived evil. And we say that's not right. Um, Jones talks about uh, that, that if, it, if it somehow crosses or inhibits us from some good, right? So I want the last cookie and my son walks away with it and what rises up in the heart is my passion that that's wrong because he didn't, he didn't do what I think he should have done. And uh, so that's why we fight. Uh, we, we remember the, these languages here, right? Remember chapter one, chapter four, verse one. The source is your pleasures, which wage war in your members. We said we love to get our way. That's what pleasures means. It's the feeling you get when you get what you want, and we love to get our way. So that's problem number one. Problem number two that leads to fighting is we want something too much. When we don't get it, we get angry. Pastor Terry said this uh, in his sermon a couple of weeks ago. I think I said it the same day, and we didn't even compare notes. It's we're reading the same Bible, I guess. Uh, is that uh, when you sin, when you don't get your way, or if you're willing to sin in order to get your way, then you want something too much, don't you? And that's why we say anger is God's warning system that you're wanting something too much. So look back at the text. You lust, meaning you want something, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And that's kind of where we left off, okay? That's the diagnostic. We love to get our way. We want something. When we don't get it, we get angry. Now, let's, let's review again. What should a Christian want more than anything else? God's glory. So I'm going to ask you, a personal question. When your son or daughter or spouse or granddaughter or great-granddaughter takes the last of your favorite cookie, what does the glory of God look like in your kitchen in terms of how he might desire you to respond? Is that too personal? How does that work? Give preference? You mean I have to let them have the cookie? Even though I paid for them? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. God's glory is I delight in preferring others more than I prefer myself. God is glorified when I find joy in giving more than getting. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking... But what if they're those oatmeal raisin things that my wife makes? And even in those situations, right? Yeah, it's personal, isn't it? Um, 
that's hard, isn't it? And, and, and obviously, you know, this is, this is way more serious than just, uh, you know, a, a cookie. Um, c- can we just admit that dying to our own wants and our own desire to get our way, that that's really hard to do? Because what did he say? We love to get our way. You ready for this? It takes the gospel to help me to die to myself so that I delight in letting others have their way instead of me demanding my way. It takes the gospel for me day to day, as it were, to crucify my selfish wants and replace them with a desire to love my neighbor. Right? And that's, that's what he's talking about here. Um, but you know that that's how we that's we that's how we the glory of God is not like this this big grand thing that we only do in church. The glory of God is seen in those mundane moments of your kitchen or my living room, where we delight in considering others as more important than ourselves. That puts the gospel on display. That puts the God's glory on display. Notice this. Let's pick up where we left off now. Okay, look at verse three. James says this, you know what? God sometimes doesn't give you what you want. Uh, parents of small children, where parents, raise your hand if you are a parent of a small child. Okay. Do you just give your small children everything they want? Why don't you do that? It's not always good. All right. Uh, they, they wouldn't last very long. That's right. Um, they would keep wanting more. Now, do children automatically know what's best for them? No. Now, they come into the world foolish and naive and dumb and ignorant. That's why God invented parents. Right? Because you're supposed to be smarter and wiser than they are. And and, and that's how this parenting thing is supposed to be. And, and, And the same is true, guys. The same is true of our Heavenly Father. We are dumb children. We are foolish children. We are ignorant children. We don't know what we need. And we think, oh, this this would be great. And God's going, I wouldn't go there. And so God defies our desires sometimes. Because he has a bigger purpose. He has a greater purpose, doesn't he? Look at the first reason that sometimes God doesn't give what, what give us what we want. What is it? What is it? We don't ask him. What does the Bible say? Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Best Buy? No. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. The Father of lights, right? I will raise my hand and say that that way more than I would like to admit, I don't see every good thing in my life as coming from the hand of my Heavenly Father. Do you? And so sometimes God says, you know what? That is a good thing for you to have. I ain't giving it to you yet. Why not? Because you don't see that everything comes from me. And what does God want? What brings God glory? What brings God glory is when we are trusting Him, when we are dependent on Him, and when we're acknowledging how much we need Him. When we live in the delusion of autonomy, that's a dangerous uh, spiritual situation, isn't it? 
We think I'm fine without God. I, I, I go to God when I need stuff, right? And so James is saying here, you know what? You do not have what you want sometimes because you don't ask God. And so God delays the delivery to remind you that everything you have, everything I have, everything in this life comes from his hand. I was just reading in my Bible reading plan, just reading Deuteronomy. What a great book. Maybe I should do Deuteronomy next. You like Deuteronomy? You get in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Chapter 6 is the, the Shema, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Remember that? And then chapter 7, chapter 8. And he says this, and it just it struck me. I, I've read this dozens of times. And he says to the Israelites, um, you know, I didn't pick you to be my people because you were the biggest and greatest people. In fact, I picked you because you were small. You were, you were a little people, right? And he said, when you come into the land and when you inherit my blessings... Then watch yourself, watch yourself in the blessing that you might think it was my power and my talent that brought me these good things. And then Moses reminds the people this. He says, you must remember that it is God who is giving you the power to do those things. Oh. So yeah, I go to the office and I, I have a skill and I do a job and I get a paycheck, but I wouldn't have any of that if God didn't give me those abilities, right? Whether it's banking or flying airplanes or fixing cars or practicing medicine, right? It, it, all those things come from God's good hand. And that's what God wants is that we would, what, what is, uh, what does Proverbs say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Do what? Acknowledge him. That's what God is looking for. Psalm 16. I have set the Lord sometimes in front of me, right? Is that what it says? I have set the Lord continually before me. And because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. That's what God's looking for. So, so James is honing in on that saying, ask God and remember that sometimes when you're wanting something and it seems good to you and it seems good to the spouse and God's saying no, one of the options might be, we're not asking. We need to ask. Look, look at the next reason that God sometimes doesn't give us what we want. He says, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Oh, no. Here we go again. We're, we're back to that feeling we get we get what we want. We're, we're back with being in love with getting our way. Sometimes we, oh, Lord, I come to you in humility today. Asking you for that new bass boat. I believe that I could glorify God the most in my... And you know what? I think there's probably an occasion where you can glorify God by getting a new bass boat. But sometimes, sometimes we come to God asking selfishly. We're not asking for the sake of His glory and for His kingdom and and saying my will be done or your, your will be done. We're saying my will be done. And so God says sometimes I don't give you what you want because you're asking with the wrong motive. And so we come right back to where he started. The source of conflict is our pleasures, right? The feeling we get when we get what we want. So we ask, we don't ask God or we ask with the wrong motives. Now, now look at this, verse 4. Now, now this, is, this is where it gets really personal here. He says, you adulteresses, and you can, you can just see, right? This is probably a, a circular letter, right? So James writes a letter, he sends it off, and, and the first sort of group of the 12 tribes gets it, and they, they read it, right? And then they send it off to the next town where some other Jewish Christians were. And you can, you can sort of see 
the reader, as those early Christians were gathered, maybe dropping the scroll on the ground at that point or something, right? This is a, you know, we talk about a mic drop moment, right? This is like a scroll drop moment, right? Adulteresses? What does God think of us? What does God call it when we are living for ourselves instead of living for him? It's spiritual adultery. It's spiritual unfaithfulness. And I think, this is really personal, but let this hit you like it's supposed to hit you. When I'm living for self, as normal as that is, that is a first degree felony in the kingdom of God, isn't it? That to live for myself is high crime when I'm supposed to be living for God. And so those garden variety conflicts that you and I have in our houses probably every week are occasions for significant repentance. Those are not things to just gloss over and apologize for and kind of move on. This gets at the very core of who God calls us to be, that we would live for him and not for ourselves, as 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. Now, so what he's going to do here, it's kind of like, whoa, adulteresses, he's going to, he's going to sort of snuff out two root causes. What, why is it that we are so in love with living for ourselves? What, what, what contributes to that? Well, we'll notice what he says here. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the, the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here's what he's going to do. James identifies two root causes of why we struggle to live for ourselves and and why we are always trying to get our way. Okay, One is external and one is internal. The external root is this, friendship with the world. When we cuddle up to the world system in terms of its stuff, its materialism, its way of doing relationships, its way of thinking about self and, and what you deserve and what you have. When we live the world's perspective on what is valuable and, and what is important, we will end up fueling a life that lives for self. Because that's what the world is about, right? It's you live for yourself. And other people exist to gratify what you want. I mean, don't you hear that in like like common marriage advice, right? Well, if you're not having your needs met, well... What good is it? Right? You, you're not in love with the person anymore. They don't meet, make you feel special. You don't have your needs met. Do you hear the selfishness in that? And, and that the, the commitment of my marriage only exists insofar as I'm having my needs met and I'm happy in the relationship? That's the world system. And when you buy into that, guess what? That fuels living for you instead of Jesus. And, and a thousand other things. Do this this afternoon. I don't know if you guys watch tv or shows or you know watching stuff is so complicated now it's like do you netflix do you amazon do you, whatever you do right so so let watch a commercial sometimes do this with your kids and and uh uh evaluate the commercial in terms of how it's getting you to believe lies so that you will want things right you know i i'm sitting there i've got like four vehicles 
um, you know, Alan's got his car, and we've got the van, we've got you know, a couple of sedans, and I think, you know, it's, it's great. We've got cars, they're usable, they're functional. And, and you know, I'm sitting there, and uh, the Ford commercial comes on, and they've got this Texas edition F-150, you know, and it's, it's got the little thing on the back, and, and, and you know, and of course, you, you always see, you know, there's the happy family, they're going to the lake, he's pulling this great ski boat, right, Jack, a ski boat in the back, we're going to do some wakeboarding, some skiing, and I'm going, oh, man. That could be my life. And then I look out in the driveway at my 1999 Toyota Camry that's leaking oil all over the driveway. Gets me to and from church every day just fine. And I go, I would be so... Look at how happy they are going to the lake. I could have a family like that, right? And all of a sudden, that commercial introduces discontentment, doesn't it? Because I believe this lie. I deserve that. Or I believe this lie. My family would be so much happier with a Ford F-150 Texas edition with the ski boat option, right? So do that. Do this with your kids and, and show the deception, the lies that they're teaching you. And when you believe the wrong things, you will want the wrong things, won't you? So, so friendship with the world. And a thousand other examples. We need to move on here. But a thousand other examples of how when you identify with the world in terms of its value systems, its wants, its way of doing things. Uh, students, you see this in your schools, don't you, right? You, you see it on the soccer field. Uh, moms and dads, you see this uh, in, in HEB. You see it when you go to work. You see it on social media. Friendship with the world is fatal to the Christian life. And it is hostility to God, and it leads to the indictment of being spiritual adulterers when we buy into that system. So root cause number one of our selfishness is external, right? It's when we see the world, and, and, and that sin inside of us resonates, and we begin to adopt that system. There's a second cause, and this is an internal cause. It's just good old-fashioned pride. This is, this is the heart of what it means to be a sinful human being is that I am prideful. You say, what's that? I think my way is best. I think I know better than anybody else. I think uh, I should have my way right away, uh, good old Burger King theology. And uh, when I live in arrogance and selfishness and believing that I'm right and believing that I'm best, now, let me just ask, how many how many have been married more than 40 years, let's say? Been married more than 40 years. Okay, excellent. Okay, let me just ask you guys. How does it go in your marriage when you just demand that you're right to your spouse? Just how does that go? Is that, it goes poorly. Okay. Right? Yeah, don't do it. Oh, you don't do it. That's good. Okay. See, that, that's what it does, right? When, when you just, when you just make, you know, your way the battering ram with your spouse, you start World War III in your marriage. Um, and that's what James is saying, not just in marriage, but in any realm of life. Pride is, is I don't think this is overstating it, pride is a significant part of every spiritual struggle you'll face. Pride was the sin that the devil himself practiced. Pride was the sin that he introduced to the human race. Pride is saying there's something better than God. I know better than God. I don't need God. 
And that leads to every evil thing. So back to the text, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, right? We saw that. Or do you think that the, the scripture speaks in no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace, meaning that, that there's, a, there's a better option than that, right? God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Guys, there, there are very few places in the Bible where it says this. If you do this, God is opposing his face to you. And here's one of the most common ones. When we live in pride and arrogance and selfishness, thinking that we don't need God, thinking that we know better than God, God says, I am opposed to that. This is a a full court defense of, of divine resistance against any and all efforts of our pride and selfishness. Um, now, footnote. When you and I are in conflict, usually pride causes it, right? I think my paint color and my paint brand and my, is better than what my wife is saying, right? But, but think of it like this. Pri- see, see, pride is a double-edged sword. Pride is going to slice you on the front end by getting you into the conflict because you think your way is best. Now, now think with me. How does pride get you on the back end, too, of a conflict? What does pride do to keep you from resolving your conflict? What does it do? What's that? It keeps you from humbling yourself, right? So you know how you, you've, you've done this. You've done this just like I have. I'm on one side of the house. I can't believe this. Right? I'm not going to go. I'm, you know, I'm going to wait for her to come to me. You know, and I'm. We do that. And it's my pride, even when I know I'm wrong, that keeps me from admitting it, isn't it? Do you want to hear the most wonderful news in the world? God will give you grace if you humble yourself. God opens up the conduit of the grace and mercy and help and provision of good things he wants to give you if you and I will turn from our pride and turn from our selfishness and come to him and say, it's wrong, I'm wrong, I need your help, I need your forgiveness. I need you to help me to go fix it with my wife. I need you to help me to go fix this with my kids. You need to give me grace to call my mom that I've been ignoring for the last two years and and make this right with her. You know, we need God's grace to fix the relational problems of life. We need God's grace to grow in our sin uh, toward righteousness. And God says he's opposed the proud but gives grace to them. That's, that's our psalm, right? That the sacri- God is not impressed with the bull that you offer on the altar. What he wants is a contrite and humble heart that says, Lord, I need your grace. And I was wrong. Now, watch this. Repentance is the right response. When we have conflict, when we have sin, when we're living for ourselves, when we're buying into the delusion that we deserve our way and we think that, you know, prayer exists uh, as the vending machine of heaven, I just ask God and he gives me what I want. And I'm, I'm cuddling up with the world and the world systems and I'm living in pride and arrogance and, and, and this indicts us to humble ourselves and to turn away from pride. You say, how do we do that? 
I get it, Pastor Keith. I get what he's saying. I agree. How do I turn away from my sin? What, what does repentance look like? What does it mean to not do this? Well, look, he gives us a list. Do you love the lists of the Bible? I love the lists of the Bible. Look at this. First thing, submit to God. Submit to God. When you realize that you're in sin, maybe it's anger and conflict like we've been talking about. Maybe it's some other sin. The first thing you need to do, what humility means, guys, what repentance means is we put ourselves under what God is saying. Did you see David do that in Psalm 51? He says, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, what I have done against you is the most important thing. And he submits to God. He humbles himself. He puts himself under the word of God at that point. He submits to what God says. That's what David says, right? You are blameless when you speak. You are right when you judge. So we have to submit to God. Um, what does submitting to God look like in a conflict? It means turning away from my pride. It means considering that I may not be as right as I think I am. It may be listening to my spouse instead of telling her what I think she needs to know. Right? Those are all things that the Word of God would, would instruct us in, right? So submitting to God means I take what I know about the Bible and I start doing it. I turn away from what I'm doing and I come back to doing what God says I should do. So step one is, is submit to God. Look at this. Step two, resist the devil. Oh, my goodness. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. How does the devil work in a moment like this? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, good night. Be honest with me, okay? The experience of pride and being right and wanting her to agree with you feels really good, doesn't it? Am I the only one that feels like that? It feels good in the moment. She's going to see it my way. Yeah. The devil is in that language. The devil is in those feelings. Those feelings of entitlement, those feelings of being right, of being uh, proving your case. That, that's why we saw this last time. That's why we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 that when you let the sun go down on, the anger, on, on your anger, you give the devil an opportunity. You re- listen, you resist the devil by repenting quickly. That's what you do. You resist the devil by submitting to what you know God says and not uh, um, elongating that moment where you're living in your pride and your selfishness and your anger. You know, there's not some crazy formula, I rebuke Satan. That's not how you resist Satan. You know how you resist Satan? You repent. You believe what God says and you act on it instead of reveling and acting and stewing in what your emotions say is right. That's how you resist the devil. You you defy the devil by believing God more than your feelings. That's how you defy him. You resist him. Look at this. Then you draw near to God. What does Jesus say in Hebrews 4? Come to me. He's a sympathetic high priest, right? Come boldly to the throne of grace and he will give you mercy and grace to help in your time of need. You go to him, you draw near to him. Have you noticed this? Sometimes in our sin, 
we go to all the wrong places, don't we? We go to Netflix. We go to our Amazon app. We go to Pinterest. We, we get on social media. We, 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 it's like we want to just distract ourselves from the one thing we need to be focusing on. And so we turn to our phone instead of Jesus when we ought to be drawing near to God. And that's not, that's not even super Christian. Drawing near to God is just saying, Lord, I need your help. Will you help me? It's just opening your Bible and saying, Lord, help me to believe and act on what I know is true. Maybe it is calling a friend and saying, I know what the right thing is to do. I'm just struggling to do it. Can you reassure me that this is the right thing to do? Christian community plays a role in drawing near to God. But we draw near to God as a part of repentance. Fourth, cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. This is Old Testament language, right? Did you hear that? Um, who, who can ascend, right? Who, who can stand before the Lord, the psalm says? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's always been the standard to come before God. So so tell me, how can, can sinners with with dirty hands and wicked hearts, how can we draw near to a holy God? Answer, we have a great high priest who's in the heavens, who has already offered himself as a a once and for only sacrifice. And on the basis of his blood and his sacrifice and his work, he cleanses us, he he renews us and changes us so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. it's, It's only because of Jesus that we can draw near to God in our sin, isn't it? Because we have that, that perfect... And you know what that means? Jesus needs to be the center of your repentance. If repentance is a formula, I'm just confessing to God, I'm just telling Him I'm sorry. And, and we heard it in the psalm. He's saying, Lord, you, you, you're my only hope. I need you to purify me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to create in me a clean heart. He's crying out to God saying, my only hope is if you do something miraculous in me. That's repentance, right? Repentance is saying, I need the gospel. I need a savior. I need someone to work inside of me if there's any hope for me. So repentance ought to be an occasion to draw near to God in the gospel and and to rehearse the truths of the gospel. Look at this. Be miserable and mourn and weep over your sin. Isn't it true that um, we take sin way too casually? And we are entertained often by things that put Jesus on the cross. And so when sin happens whether it's garden variety, I'm having a fight with my wife on aisle five at Lowe's or, or, or adultery and murder, like in, in David's case, that we mourn and we are miserable and we weep. I had a guy ask me this week, he said, do you need to be sad when you sin and you're trying to repent? What does the Bible say? Absolutely, right? That's all over Psalm 51. Then he asked me this question. What if I'm not sorrowful over my sin? That's a good question. Yeah, it isn't true repentance, isn't it? And so we had, we had a good conversation. We talked about everything. But, you know, the first thing you do when you're not sorrowful over your sin is you confess your lack of sorrow to God. Lord, I, I, I need to be convicted by this, but I'm not. I need you to show me the guilt of my sin. You know, in our society, we're trying to get rid of guilt. Guilt's horrible. Don't, don't look at guilt. Don't get near guilt, right? Guilt is a good thing, guys, when it brings you to God in repentance. Uh, John Owen, the Puritan, used to say, we need to load our conscience with the guilt of it. 
And what, what he meant by that was we need to see sin and all its ugliness and meditate on that until we feel a conviction and a sorrow, a proper sorrow and guilt over sin. And finally, look at, look at this wonderful note. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And what's he going to do? He's going to exalt you. He will restore you. He will encourage you. He will exalt you in that. So, um, so that's repentance, right? This is the program when we find ourselves living for self and living in anger and conflict. Uh, C.S. Lewis is right. Repentance is no fun at all. But it is a glorious and joyful path back to restoration with God and in transformation uh, of our lives. So let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus that we can come to your throne for grace and mercy because he has paid this wonderful sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, Lord, help us to take our sins seriously. Help us to turn away and and to practice true repentance. Lord, might we live in humility, leaning on you and relying on you and the gospel of Jesus and all that we do. Lord, thank you for our time. Give us grace now to apply what we've learned. In Christ's name, amen.